Welcome to the Edition Wars podcast, where we discuss RPG ideas, compare rules, establish sacred cows, fight about what's best, kill the cows, and generally geek out over our favorite games. I'm Sam Dillon. And I'm Brandis Stoddard. And this episode, we are discussing skill systems, part two. So let's let's leap off this cliff into third edition. Um, it's 3.5 that I have open in front of me, but the the differences are uh, close enough that I can more or less do this uh, shooting from the hip. Um, so, uh, so why don't you talk about skill resolution first in third edition? Because it's different. Okay. So, so the fundamental of skill resolution is that it's all on the D twenty system. Um, you you have a D twenty. You add some modifiers. You try to beat a target number that is an armor class or a difficulty class. Um, that they they wanted to unify everything onto a single mechanic, and God bless them, they did it. Um, by great majority, this is a victory. Uh, the drawbacks are that a D20 has only 20 sides, uh, as its name suggests. But uh, for the most part, this is a, a, a huge success in just letting you know at the table very quickly what you're supposed to do. It, if you have a task, I bet you're going to roll a D20 for it. And that's great. That's that's phenomenal. It's really the first unified system yep. of the editions. Of yep. so all previous editions had non-cohesive systems. They had many games, many systems, many M I N I, not M A N Y. They had many oh, systems too. built that within too. the game. Yeah, I guess both of those work, right? Many and many. <laughs> there um, were many, many systems. <laughs> yep. So. The the modifier that you're adding to your skill roll is going to be a number of skill ranks, uh, which range anywhere from zero to well twenty three within the uh, first uh, twenty levels of play, uh, unstatedly high if you go past twentieth level. Um, then you add your uh, relevant ability modifier because every uh, every skill is tied to an ability, um, and then you might have all kinds of other modifiers. This is one of the great through lines of third edition that there are there's a whole spate of possible modifiers, uh, most notably for skills. Uh, you have synergy bonuses, so that if you have five ranks in skill A, you receive a plus two bonus to skill B. Uh, there are a bunch of interconnections there to help promote a sense of competence. Uh, and to encourage you to pick up five ranks of uh, this random thing because it will make you better at the other random thing that you actually want to be great at. <laughs> right. Um, it's fun to make the numbers go up. What can I tell you? Uh, the lure of getting two free points to a thing. Well, yes, yes, I think I shall. Right. Now, let me also ask you this. Are there, and I I know the answer, but let me just ask it. Uh, are there any feats that track back to skills and say, well, if you have this many ranks in this skill, you can now do this? 
Lord are there. <laughs> uh, In other words, it's a way to expand the customizability of characters. Uh, sure, we'll call it that. That's fine. Um, <laughs> you disagree with my with my terminology? Uh, I think you're being a little generous. Uh, I think I think the uh, feats that grant plus two to two skills or plus three to one skill are well, were very unpopular with players, except for the corner cases where they were abusive. Yeah. Um, and then there's one feat that grants plus four to one skill, but you need to have such a good rating in that skill that I guess you're going to buy that feat. Combat casting, my friends. Combat casting and concentration. Um, so uh, over the course of the edition an enormous number of uh, Wizards of the Coast books and uh, third edition, sorry, third party supplements um, released a feat name. They just came up with a word for it that picked some two skills and granted you plus two to each of them. Uh, The skill list is long enough that you can, you can publish a whole book of those Mm -hmm. and you did. Um, (laughs) And, and then you've also got skill focus, which is pick any skill, plus three with that. Um, so that's that's the general run of things. Um, so so wait, so do do you think that that is a? You know, you said I was being generous, and I I kind of was being tongue in cheek about it. But do you think that's it's a mis, It's sort of a way to mislead people into thinking that that's really important but yet the benefit is not worth spending the feed on or do you think that it was just a way to produce a ton of basically useless but evenly balanced crap feats um little column a little column b actually okay uh, so i think that they are largely traps for the unwary um or to be deeply charitable they are uh, customization options for people who are not dedicated to combat effectiveness uh, if you are comfortable spending feats on on your non-combat effectiveness then we have those for you you'll do fine um, more cynically <laughs> i would say that uh, third edition very much wanted to reward system mastery and uh, you know understanding of corner cases where even even skill focus was a great purchase. There are a lot of those cases, but diplomacy is sure one of them if you're a bard. Uh, mm-hmm. You can get into situations where you crank your diplomacy bonus up so high that, and, and we're talking about by second level here, not mid-game, very, very early. Uh, your diplomacy bonus is so good that uh, you should be able to talk your way out of almost any situation um, in a way that if you're investing in it that hard, you might very well be trolling the DM. Uh, <laughs> um, there was a lot of that um, antagonistic play that uh, that came up in the community in third edition. Uh, it's, a, it's a really big thing. Um, 
Well, and there was also a lot of people who uh, made a character that was good at one thing. Literally one thing. And everything that they built around pushed that whatever it was, whatever their one thing was, really high. Uh, they couldn't do anything else, but everything related to that one thing. They were the expert, unequivocally, you know, no one could even come close to what they were doing. Now, for some people, that would be considered trolling the DM. And for some people, that's just they sort of got in a loop or a rut or whatever however you want to say it. They had a character concept they went with, and it turned out to <laughs> just make you really good at one thing and almost nothing else. Yep. Um so stepping back from the the general function of the skill system and getting to how a little bit more of how it worked in character building um each class has a list of uh class skills and everything that isn't on that list is a cross class skill um and so there's this lovely table on page 63 of the 3.5 player's handbook um, that tells you whether a, a given uh, skill is in class or cross class for you, but uh, in general, we can say that 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 lovely table just has a bunch of capital C's and lowercase C's on it. It's horrible. It's it's, un, it's unreadable. Yeah, it's it's, it's it is. It, <laughs> I I I'm not even looking at it right now, and I knew exactly what table yeah, you're man, talking about. I, oh my god! I mean, I, I know you see it when you wake up screaming at night. It's okay. I do too. Yeah. <laughs> I'm your support group for this. I do. I definitely do. <laughs> so this is where we get into where I think that the skill system really starts failing its users. Um, and so wait, so wait, wait, wait. So we went from additions with no skill system to speak of to additions with a proto skill system uh -huh. to second edition, which had a skill system that was proto feats uh -huh. to third edition with a skill system that is a failure. So, so I don't think the skill system is a failure. I, I want to, let, let me clarify that this skill system. Is okay. Not I, a, that's what I wanted. Cause you, cause the way you said that was, was very so, interesting. So the so. skill system is not a failure. It is failing its users. That's that. That's okay. a, a distinction in, in language that I want to draw. I think that uh, as a resolution mechanic, it's it's great. It's fine. Um, th there are still things I don't miss about it, but I, I, want, to, I want to drill down on that. So the issue is that uh, the number of skills and the number of skill points that a class receives is not very evenly distributed. Um, so you have fighters who aren't going to be able to have a lot of fun in non-combat scenes if there are a lot of skill roles because they're good at almost none of them and they receive very few skill points. So, right, they get like two, right? Two plus their modifier or something like that. I mean, it's really low. Each uh, so each class receives either a base of two or four or six or eight skill points plus their Initiative, so their intelligence bonus, intelligence bonus. So, gee, I wonder who gets eight. Uh, well, <laughs> it's rogues. Uh, you, know, you know, spoiler, it's rogues. Uh, and so you've, you also got bards with six. Um, 
in 3.5, it'll be if they had four uh, plus int in uh, 3.0. Um, and rangers do okay for themselves, but not maybe the greatest. Um, but um, you've got an intelligence class, the wizard, only gets uh, two skill points per level plus their intelligence bonus, but their intelligence bonus um, is as high as they can push it because it's the only skill they care about. So cool, you know, good, good game. Yeah. So they're so while they start with low points, well, th- low base, a low base to their points, yep. they're not actually hobbled by it like a fighter well, is. They start with two, two as well, right? Cause right. Because a fighter right. gets two, but their int modifier is probably not very high. Right. Um, but also the wizard um, doesn't have a ton of class skills, but the skills they're expected to be good at are wildly expansible because it's knowledge. Knowledge, you know, has a bunch of subcategories that you specialize in individually. Uh, and it's it could nominally be expanded further. And there's also speak language that you can just buy more and more in. Um, so there are a bunch of, you know, greatly expansible uh, skills uh, that fall under profession or craft or knowledge. Uh, and this is how they handle the fact that they don't have just books and books of skills for every possible uh, you know, handicraft. Mm-hmm. You you decide at the time you take the skill whether you're buying leatherworking or pottery or basket weaving or armor smithing or whatever. Um, that's that's how that works. Um, it was a, a great source of frustration to me as a player in uh, third edition that uh, even if I had had a good intelligence score as you know, a, a fighter or a fighter-like character in some um, third edition adjacent games, I was never going to be able to be, be actually good at anything because it wasn't even a class skill. Um, right. I, I barely had enough points for the skills you just have to max out to even be okay with. Uh, like, If you're wearing heavy armor, well, you're taking these huge penalties to... Uh, climb and swim and jump um you'd expect to take those penalties they make sense but it means that right you're even bad at the things you're good at mm-hmm. uh right so like skill scores are just a wasteland for for fighters and it it's an incredibly frustrating decision i wish there had been some acknowledgement of well some fighters learn to talk pretty and some fighters become uh, night sentries and watch out for thieves in the night. And so they become good at spot checks and listen checks. But no, spot and listen aren't class skills for fighters. Uh, yeah, it, it kind of made them dumb brutes, it, right? It really, really pigeonholed them. All, all they can do is, is yeah, wear heavy armor and and swing a sword and really do nothing else. Um, it, this is what I mean by the, the system fails its users. Uh, right. Because with cross-class skills, you are paying uh, two skill points to get one rank. Uh, and then you your skill cap is also half of your um, 
your, your skill cap for a class skill, right? So it's uh, your level plus three divided by two. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, so your, your skill cap for a class skill is your level plus three. And that, that's, that's the four to 23 business. Right. Um, and then half that for cross class. Right. And so the, the privilege of spending uh, four of your very, very small number of starting skill points as a fighter for uh, two ranks in a skill is not not designed to make you feel good. And so here's where here's where I'm going to pu- come back to the feats now. So I think that possibly some of the this feat silliness with oh well you get this feat and you can add ranks to these you know to these skills or whatever was maybe conceived in somebody who didn't think very hard uh, in their mind as hey this is a way to let the fighter have more skills and have more ranks and more skills. But the problem is that there are so many good feats for fighting. Oh yeah. <laughs> that the fighter players, the the fighter class, whoever's playing that fighter character would be not effective if they didn't spend their feats on fighting abilities and if they instead spent them on skills because of the way the game is structured. So it's almost like there was a, a a sort of offhanded or 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 not very well thought out attempt to maybe fix uh, someone's inability to get skills or a lot of skills, and well, it didn't didn't quite work out in practice the way that maybe that they envisioned it. So there were also uh, feats that were released over the years that tried to address that still more directly in. The Forgotten Realms campaign setting of 3.0 is a feat called Cosmopolitan uh, that was a regional feat for people from Waterdeep for reasons. Um, This feat was sort of regarded as being uh, slightly overpowered, uh, so they made it a regional feat so you could only have one in your entire career. And so you had to be from Waterdeep to, to buy this. But it let you pick a cross-class skill and treat it as in-class. That that was its huge benefit, and that is a great benefit. But it's it's not the the second coming of being good at skills, the way it sort of thinks it is. It still means you have to spend a ton of skill points that you might not have, uh, and then later on. Um, don't remember which book it was, aside from probably Complete Adventurer. I could be wrong. Uh, there was a feat called Open Minded that just gave you an instant infusion of skill points. Five, I think. Uh, this is another trap feat. I, like that's that's adorable. Those five skill points, but um, if they're going to be useful to you, they're not enough. Uh, it's like having the toughness feat grant three hit points. Cool. Never buy this. The designers know it's bad. They're not actually trying to get you to buy it. It's here to be a bear trap that you accidentally step in if you don't understand the game yet. And I so don't miss that style of design. That's that's what we that's what we mean when we say 
just for the audiences, for the sake of the audience, that's what we mean when we say things like, this is definitely a game that rewards system mastery over everything else. Yep. I think that, um, I think open-minded is a trap. I think cosmopolitan is a, a pretty reasonable way to get to a character concept that is outside the norm. I would have liked to have seen it not cordoned off uh, and just brought straight into the core rules. Uh, like, I, I'm disappointed it wasn't part of the 3.5 um, player sandbook. Um, was the um, was that guide to the Forgotten Realms? Was it a 3.0 era? Yeah, that was the the Forgotten Realms campaign book. Yeah, so it, it existed before 3.5 came out. Yep. Um, yeah, but. I think that there are some really, really significant ways that the designers were fairly upfront about that the fourth edition skill system was a reaction to the the problems and perceived problems of the third edition system. So the other big thing is that with a range of skill ranks from zero to 23, um, to say nothing of a range of ability scores from a likely minus one, maybe all the way down to a, uh, a minus four, but that's not super common, uh, all the way up to uh, God only knows how high you can uh, push your ability scores, but we'll call it a casual plus eight. Um, you you don't have to get all that far into it before uh, ability scores are in can't fail territory for one character in the party and can't pass territory for another. We've talked before about how that really sucks the tension out of the role and Mm -hmm. boy, is it true here. Um, I think it goes a long way toward creating a situation where um, the, the game is perceived to have a sweet spot where, you know, characters who aren't skilled in something might still succeed at the DCs that the, uh, DM is throwing out while uh, someone who is proficient has a good chance of succeeding um, or is nearly guaranteed but not quite guaranteed but there's still some tension in the role um, mm-hmm. uh, and then you've also got issues around skills that only one person in the party needs as opposed to skills that everyone in the party needs right. spot and listen everyone needs these everyone's going to be asked to make, make spot and listen roles. Yeah. It's basically um, perception. Yep. Everybody uh, needs knowledge it. arcana. Uh, you can kind of get away with only one person having knowledge arcana. Mm-hmm. It's probably okay. Um, then there are things in the middle like diplomacy where depending on your play style, you might think, well, yep. you can get away with one person having diplomacy, but you might be in a group where more than one person really needs diplomacy. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and I think that at most tables, it's not good for the game if uh, all but one player can tune out during social interactions. I think that's bad. But it's not so necessary that every single PC has to apply a ton of ranks to it, is I guess what, you know, that's why I say it's in the middle of that particular spectrum uh, that you're talking about. Well, right, and... More classes have diplomacy in class, but far from all of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. Um, the the fundamental design of fourth edition skills, which we'll get to, uh, 
uh, is very much uh, a reaction to that huge range of possible uh, skill values mm -hmm. that you see in third edition. Uh, and I think the one other significant thing I want to say about uh, skill values for third edition is that you um, then get the epic level handbook, which uh, recognizes that you have characters who are uh, pushing their their skill ranks uh, up into the the, the mid high twenties, and their skill values into potentially the forties, fifties, and sixties, uh, depending, uh, because of things like synergy bonuses and the fact that you get huge bonuses to your jump skill if you have extra speed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, so monks just have these astronomical jump values, for example. Uh, so the Epic Level Handbook releases new, um, let's say, less probable uh, skill tasks uh, for things that are that you can't do in real life. You're mm -hmm. not supposed to be able to do them in real life. They're they're right. insane. Mm -hmm. um, but the idea is that you've become a fairly overtly magical hero who does, you know, crazy wushu wirefu stunts that um, are all reflected in your extraordinary skill values. Right. So there's another um, sort of layer of complexity that is that is also part of this skill system that's here that we haven't really talked about. I mean, we sort of talked around it, and that is the fact that some skills you can use untrained and some skills you have to be trained to be able to even do that skill to, to even also attempt true. it and that that sort of harkens back to what we were saying about the original thief and the thieving skills the implication of well that's the character class with that ability and no one else yep. can even attempt it and here it is you know writ large in black and white uh that that is actually indeed true of certain skills um you know, I, it's it's about 60-40 uh, in terms of percentage. You know, about 60% of the skills, everybody can attempt those things. But about 40%, it's not that everyone could even attempt that. Yep. Well, and uh, even further on that point, um, disabled device is only in class for rogues. Mm -hmm. uh, and... Uh, Open lock is only in class for rogues, and then further there is a uh, trap finding feature in the rogue class that uh, makes damn sure no one else can ever uh, get anywhere with disabled device as a trap finding character because you have to have this feature to even attempt to find. Uh, high DC traps. Well, mid DC traps. Right. Starting traps. The basic <laughs> yeah, trap. Basic trap. Yeah, so just as a counter, you know, as a um is there a table somewhere? Yeah, here is not. I I finally got my book out. Uh the <laughs> the uh the, the table for DCs it gives us examples of difficulty classes and you know, it is easy to climb a knotted rope, right? Um, yep. And then it's it's an average, you know, DC. So easy is five, and average is ten on on D twenty, um, plus your modifiers and all that. 
you know, it was basically a 10. You know, if, if, if you have two ranks in a skill and you've got a plus three modifier, that's your five. And, you know, so you're adding five to your roll. So you basically need to roll a five to, to beat an average DC. Um, you know, that's easy, right? I mean, theoretically speaking. Um, yep. and it, it's something that's challenging would be a DC 20. Something that's heroic would be a DC 30. Uh, nearly impossible would be a DC of 40. And that sounds like a huge number, but as, as we've talked about on other episodes, when you're talking about third and fourth edition in particular, you're talking about numbers that get up into the 30s and 40s routinely. Yep. Yep. Um, I can't you know, go through it off the top of my head anymore, mm-hmm. but uh, there are definitely ways to get those kinds of huge bonuses, even at very low levels for high synergy skills um, and you know, spending feats to to send it as high as possible. So um, even DCs of, of 50 and higher become, um, let's say, a little more hittable than anyone really intended. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, at least then anyone... Than it seems like anyone ever intended at the beginning of the edition. I think it doesn't look like anyone looked at all the possibilities right. together and made the positive decision that that was a good right. idea. Put it that way. Yeah, I can agree with that assessment. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny because as part of this podcast, I I feel like we're critiquing the design, right, uh, of all of these games and. I just want to say again, you know, we're not really critiquing the design. I mean, we we are critiquing, but with with uh, an air of love, not an air of malice, if that makes sense. You know, I, w- with reverence and with honor, we're looking at these systems and saying, okay, well, we love these these games, we love these editions, and we're just looking at the minutia of what made these systems work or not work. And you know, that's what a critique is. We're not saying the whole thing is horrible. Let's throw it out. This was ridiculous. We're saying, hey, here's how they did it, and here's the design decisions they made, and here were some of the consequences that maybe were unforeseen or were unintended, and yet that's what this is what they led to. Uh, right. Um, I, we've sort of glossed over the the great virtue <laughs> of the skill point system, mm-hmm. uh, which is radical customization. Right. Uh, if you want to. If you really enjoy the the difference in uh, being a little better at one thing than another, uh, if you want to watch your your numbers grow and feel your character's competence as they attempt the same task they attempted you know a few levels ago and they're now much better at it, like this is going to give you that. It's going to give you that in spades. It's going to give you that in clear, observable ways so that choices you made affect your outcomes. Um, and and let's be and, honest, it gives you a little jolt at the table when you're sitting there and the DM says, oh, here's the situation and, you know, here's this door and it's locked. And you you say, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to attempt to pick that lock. And somebody sitting next to you at the table says, oh, what's your, you know, what's your open locks, you know, skill rank? Uh, you know, or, or what's your what's your bonus to the roll when you're skill? Oh, it's a plus sixteen. 
you know, right. at third level. And they're like, oh my God, yeah. you know, that's amazing. Yeah. And there's a, there's a yeah. little jolt of satisfaction there of, of a job well done that you created a character that is highly, highly effective. Yep. Yep. That is, uh, that is definitely a, the reward loop of system mastery. Right. I, I definitely get that. I mean, that's, as as where my um, gaming community was, along with the rest of the edition, um, and sort of the whole D and D community, uh, from I don't know, we'll call it the year two thousand. I'll just pick mm-hmm. one out of a hat. <laughs> year two thousand up through, I'll pick another another number out of a hat. Twenty fourteen. <laughs> just this just years. Yeah, I'm just this yeah. just years. Could, could have been any years. Although in two thousand and eight. Fourth edition overhauled the skill system. It did, but it didn't overhaul the system mastery. It didn't overhaul the system mastery, although it made you think it did. That's cute. And it it, it did. It, it it attempted to try. Sure. <laughs> if that's a, if that's a if that's a double negative positive. <laughs> double negative. <laughs> Here, here, here's what I mean by that. Well, so do we want to actually move on to fourth edition, or what? What else do we have to say about third edition? To to finish up uh, third edition and and make sure I've uh, said everything I really care to say. Um, a lot of classes that came out uh, later on in the edition um, really leaned into skill bonuses as features that you were. Uh, receiving as you advanced. Uh, one of the really interesting cases is uh, uh, Book of Nine Swords. Uh, the the practice of the different types of sword play becomes very linked to you know, skills. Each, uh, each of the uh, martial arts in there has a skill that it, it is dependent on. And that's a really, it's a really innovative mechanic, um, that you know I, I really it was very popular at the time. It remains popular to this day because it's such a different vision of what the function of play can be like. Um, I mentioned very briefly the concentration skill and the the combat casting feat that grants a plus four in it. Uh, what I want to uh, circle back and say about that uh, as briefly as possible is that you'll sometimes hear people uh, talk about a skill tax or a feat tax, and this is both. Um, so the concentration skill in third edition uh, determines whether or not you uh, lose a spell if you are threatened in melee while you cast or uh, whether you have to even uh, suffer an attack because you have either the just grin and bear it option or the cast defensively option. Um, The DCs go up as you are casting higher level spells, uh, which means that you need to be uh, pouring skill points into it at every chance you get. This needs to always be maxed out for your level. Uh, that's not going to change. You also really kind of need the combat casting feat 
to get an, an additional plus four to your defensive casting. Uh, arguably, you could buy skill focus instead for plus three that will apply to other uses of the concentration role. That's that's valid. Uh, both is better. Um, not that you have a lot of feats to throw around as a spellcaster. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's exactly the point, though, right? You don't have a lot of feats to throw around, so right. you have to make your choice judiciously, and you know, uh, right? It's just it's a very solved question at first level. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you say choose judiciously. I say forced to for, it's, forced it's to go, right? No, I, yeah, yeah. Barely it's a not choice. A, it, right. Yes, um, and and you know there go skill points every level just just out the door before you even think about it mm-hmm. you're not making a choice you're just keeping it maxed out um and similarly the rogue has this huge number of skill points but most of them are spoken for with skills that they have to keep maxed out because the dcs are going up whether they put points in them or not mm-hmm uh, and remember now, those thieving abilities are now actual skills on the skill table. Yep. So yep. it's not like the other editions where if there was a thief class, the thief automatically got abilities with some percentage of being able to, you know, be able to succeed at those abilities. Now right. it's just part of the regular skill system, which is a, a feature and a bug in that way. Right. Um, that's. That's, that's a big part of it. Also, you see uh, skills start to become a a necessary part of the bookkeeping of monster creation. So monsters have skills and skill points too, and the work isn't done until you assign them. Mm-hmm. Let's be real. They probably don't come up. Mm-hmm. Uh, other than spot, listen, hide, move silently, uh, and concentration. Right. Very, very few monster skills come up. Yeah. So only a, only a major villain, right? So it it becomes a, a a huge additional burden of bookkeeping on um, proper monster design, mm-hmm. um, and I think that uh, just accepting that in general monsters weren't going to you know need all of these. Uh, skills and could be played just fine without any skill proficiencies is another of the great strengths of fifth edition for just ease of use and mm-hmm. ease of homebrew creation. Um, yeah. If I say my creature knows how to tie a rope knot, it just knows how to tie a rope knot. I don't have to sure, put skill sure. points on it. <laughs> if, your monster, if your monster needs to be proficient in a skill, yeah. You can just find out its proficiency bonus and assign it. It's okay. It doesn't yep. even need to go in a stat block because right. this monster can be different. It's okay. Yep. Um, so I think I have now said everything that I need to say about <laughs> skills in third edition. But okay, God help me. My friends are going to listen to this podcast and tell me, hey, what about that thing? And that'll be the first half hour of the next episode. Right, right. <laughs> So with 4th edition skills, you've got a much tidier skill list. We touched on how 4th edition skills begin the shift to uh, 
bounded accuracy as a concept by making sure that roles stay tense later into the game than they otherwise would. It's much harder to get to um, only fail on a 1, only pass on a 20 kind of situations, or with skills because you don't auto-pass on a 1 or uh, auto-pass uh, auto on a 20 or auto-fail on a 1, then just can't pass at all. Who knows? Um, what I recall from the early marketing material around this change is talking about um, checks to successfully ride a horse and noting that you can't really keep this interesting if it is a trivial role for uh, the the fighters and paladins of the party to ride a horse in difficult conditions uh, at mid to late levels, but the spellcasters who've put nothing in it can't possibly pass. So what you want is to be something like 25% more likely to succeed, maybe up to 50% more likely to succeed, as long as the character who's bad at it doesn't have a 0% chance. Uh, so the way they handle that is that you have a, a flat bonus to skill checks that just increases with your level, and then proficiency is an additional fixed bonus on top of that. Um, so uh, as I was saying, they trim the skill list way down um, such that it's fairly reasonable for me to just read them all right now. You have acrobatics, which covers uh, balance and tumble and some kinds of jumping and escape artist. Uh, you have arcana. You have athletics that covers climb, jump, and swim. You have bluff, diplomacy, dungeoneering, endurance, which is sort of an oddball here, but maybe we can talk about that. Um, heal, history, insight, intimidate, nature, uh, perception that covers both spot and listen, uh, religion, stealth, which covers both hide and move silently, um, streetwise, which is another bit of a um, bit of a multi-tool, bit of an odd one, um, and finally thievery, which is your open lock and disable device, um, everything rogues do that isn't about stealth, more or less. Um, so that's a much tidier list than we had before. Um, and it's still distributed a little awkwardly to my tastes in that um, fighters still have very few options. Um, less surprisingly, uh, rogues are the kings of you know, breadth of options and number of proficient, sk proficient skills. And in fairness, you're kind of not playing a rogue right if you don't at least have stealth and thievery. So maybe we can give you some additional options on top of that. Um, so that's the, the the most basic take on what I see here. Uh, Sam, your thoughts? So the the thing about this the 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 thing about this is that fourth edition caught a lot of flack for reducing the skill system to such a small list of 
of usable actions, so to speak, um, because the third edition skill system was so expansive and was so complex and could affect so many little other parts of the game, feats and different, you know, synergies and, and different things like that. Fourth edition no longer did those things, at least not at first. Um, but on the other hand, so here's my own personal bias here. Fourth edition also took flack for not having role-playing. People uh, likened it more to a miniatures war game than a role-playing game. Uh, and that was sort of the, the boiling rage-filled debate for a while. But the thing is, to me, them reducing the, the designers, that is, reducing the skill list to such a short, compact list, and therefore making those skills cover a broad range of individual activities, to me, opened more role-playing opportunities, um, specifically also because they try to implement skill challenges as a mechanical framework for role-playing-based, skill-based activities. But otherwise, I agree with your, I mean, that none of nothing that I said disagrees with your assessment. Right. Um, I have some, some complicated feelings about accusing fourth edition of cutting out role play. And I think that um, it doesn't have explicit places where the role play goes. Um, and because it is presenting, you know, skill challenges and combats as intricate tactical puzzles, it's easy to put so much focus on solving them that you lose sight of characterization. And so players and DMs need additional reminders that no characterization is king. That's why we're here. What we mean by role-playing is characterization and story first. Um, and it's, it's possible to lose sight of that in the intricacy and enjoyment of difficulty that goes on in uh, skill challenges and combat challenges. Um, thinking of my own DMing of fourth edition, there were times when I did it better and there are times when I did it worse. And what I would, I mean, all I can say is remember to put character first and um, any system where you sort of lose sight of who the character is and just focus on um, getting the numbers to perform is one where you're forgetting about role-playing. I don't think that's in any way exclusive to uh, fourth edition or really, I don't think there's any edition of D&D where this isn't a valid accusation. Um, this is a valid problem uh, if you're losing sight of who the characters are. I've heard this said about um, some very popular uh, um, indie role-playing games as well uh, where the characters just fade into the background in preference for uh, well we have the problem and we have the tools to solve it on our character sheets let's roll the dice to make the problem to go away well it's not it's not that's not presenting characterization 
and so you're not playing the role. Uh, you're just playing the numbers. Um, but I think I've said more than enough about that. For me, I guess the, the issue with that is I, I find the argument interesting and, and kind of funny, uh, the difference between characterization and role-playing and playing numbers instead of playing your character and all, and all of those things. I, I have two final thoughts about that. The first thought is I think what has shifted is the definition of role-playing itself. Yep. Comparing more modern games, including story games, other games, other D20 based games, and then D&D, of course, um, that that definition has shifted. But the second thing to say is, um, you know, the original editions, when you go back to 1974, 1979, 1982, none of those had really explicit rules for role playing either. And they didn't have skill systems, as we discussed last time, at least the skill systems or the skill usage or the skill ability checks and all that were very rudimentary. So um, in a way, fourth edition sort of harkens back to the earlier editions versus uh, pushing forward and, and becoming even more modern. Whereas when we start talking about fifth edition, we're going to learn about inspiration points and ideals, bonds, and flaws, and those things and how they, they're not related necessarily to skill systems, but they're related to role-playing. So I, my intention was not to directly connect skill systems to role-playing, because I think that's a false connection in a way, but it there is a connection there because the definition or the ideals of role-playing have shifted. And your discussion and your, your thoughts about characterization versus playing uh, the numbers on the sheet actually uh, support that in a way. I think we're very much in the same place on this, uh, which is not terribly surprising. Um, but, I mean, there's a lot of sort of rose-colored glasses that goes into to all of this. Uh, but as I keep saying, about uh, the early marketing of 4th edition, um, Wizards of the Coast poisoned the well so hard by trying to tell people that 3.5 was bad. There's so much of their early marketing material from uh, printed products to um, uh, like presentations at Gen Con where they're talking down 3.5 which i need to say was fantastically popular phenomenally popular it had its problems it had serious problems and my group had stopped playing it but it was fantastically popular for good reason for good reason i mean it it wasn't it wasn't popular by accident and they needed to draw the whole fan base into fourth edition right Oh, no, no, it, it definitely wasn't. And its popularity came from very understandable uh, drivers. No question about that. Um, but uh, telling people that they were wrong to love it was just a terrible idea. Um, so I sort of think uh, enough of um, being the armchair marketing exec uh, 11 years later, or well, yeah, about eleven years later, maybe maybe that's a, a bad look. Um, let's talk about skill challenges, Sam. You want to tell us about skill challenges? Uh, 
Oh boy, yes. Um, so skill challenges were a system that was set up to allow the DM to present a situation that was that could have a variety of ranges of different role-playing situations, basically. Uh, that would allow... Okay, so here's the problem with skill challenges. I don't think they were presented very well. So here, here's how I... Here's my 30-second elevator pitch about skill challenges. Skill challenges put a mechanical framework upon a, a set of circumstances in which every PC at the table should be able to help or contribute in some way to resolving the situation in the party's favor. And that means that every PC, every player should be involved in that scene, even if it's one player trying to speak to the king or the king's advisor, there should be enough activity in that scene that the other PCs can do something to assist in making that situation have a resolution that is beneficial to the party. Um, and the way that that's performed is uh, you figure out what everyone is doing, and then they all make skill checks of various different skills based on whatever activity they're performing. And you want to get a certain number of successes before you get a certain number of failures. And if you get that certain number of successes, then the party overall succeeds. And this sort of mechanical framework can be placed on top of pretty much any situation you can imagine. In fact, you could even, technically speaking, perform combat if you had a short skirmish or a, a, a little combat scene that you did not want to make into a giant set piece encounter, which 4th edition is famous for. You could actually use a skill challenge to resolve that combat scene, theoretically speaking. Um, so you could probably make a a skill challenge framework to sit on top of any other anything in the game actually anything in the game now where they fall down is that sort of mechanical framework is not always conducive to pc npc interaction and when you have something where uh you might want to role play out a scene and have the players speak in character or at least say here's what i say um putting a mechanical framework on that to some players suggests well i don't need to do that part of it because i can just roll and as long as enough of us succeed we'll win that that scene um so it has its issues and it, and it had issues where it was how it was described. Um, but I have to say that Star Wars Saga Edition in one of their supplemental books, I think it was, what's the intrigue? The one with intrigue. Galaxy of Intrigue, which was published in 2010, which was after 4th edition D&D um, first came out. Uh, that Galaxy of Intrigue actually also presents skill challenges, but for the Saga Edition of Star Wars. And it's presented in a lot cleaner manner. And then, of course, sort of in late 2010, when the Essentials version of 4th Edition came out, they presented skill challenges in a much cleaner way. So I think as the edition, as it aged, they 
uh, the designers, when I say they, I'm talking about the designers, they sort of realized, oh, this is a great mechanical thing, but we didn't explain it very well. Or we didn't explain it in a way that the that our fans and the players really understood how it should be, you know, worked through at the table. And I think they got better at that, but by then it was a little too late. The people who hated it, hated skill challenges, hated them, and the people who loved them, loved them. Um, I myself liked them. But I was one of those people that I would I wouldn't introduce it at the table by saying, "Okay, we're going to do a skill challenge. Here's the situation. Tell me what you're doing." I ran them through the situation, and ran it as it's like a role playing scene, and they would be doing various skill checks and whatnot, not realizing I'm tallying successes and failures, and you know. So yeah, I, it, it's directly related to the skill system, and the part of the problem is that it. The short, here's my thing, the short skill list in fourth edition actually is a help and a hindrance to the skill challenge framework. So uh, I think you're absolutely right to sort of characterize it as this really violent smash cut to, you know, the role play is going along, we're unfolding the situation, now we're in a skill challenge as a pitfall of how to run these. And the way they're presented in adventures does not help. Um, if you're going along in the text of an adventure, a skill challenge is absolutely a smash cut to a different way to play the game. And that, that's a that's a rough feeling. Um, now, there are also some sort of uh, strictly mechanic side issues that uh, are are about more than the presentation problems, right? Um, with early skill challenges. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. A big part of it is that um, three failures is not a hell of a lot of failures. It it is awfully easy, especially if you you don't have you know the best score in the best skill in the party rolling every time uh, to rack up three failures and you're done. And I think I really want to talk about how that feels bad in D&D. So part of the fundamental game loop of D&D is that the worst thing that happens on a miss is you don't advance toward success. Missing someone in combat doesn't deal damage to the attacker. And so it's okay if you have, you know, a total uh, attack bonus that is a point or two or three lower than the best person in the party, because the worst thing that happens is you didn't make progress on your turn with skill challenges. uh, You not only don't make progress toward success, you make progress toward catastrophic failure, whatever that might mean for the situation Um, to exacerbate that. Uh, there's an another action where you don't have to roll against a scaling DC. Uh, and so your growing uh, skill score bonus uh, is only getting rolled against DC 10 to successfully aid another. Well, that's pretty easy at the start of things. It only gets easier. Um, and when you do that, you are increasing uh, another player's role by, by plus two. Well, that seems fine. Um, but skill challenges aren't usually time-driven 
to give this a cost. And so the optimal strategy in a lot of skill challenges, and I think this is deeply unfortunate, is for the party to figure out what skill they're going to try to roll this round to advance the skill challenge. And then everyone in the party who doesn't have the highest bonus in that skill just rolls aid another. This is deadly dull. This really destroys everything good and exciting about the skill challenge system. And if there is one thing I've learned about players in 25 years of this hobby, it's that uh, they'll choose optimal play over enjoyable play uh, just enough to make sure they hate the game. I've seen this so many times. There's also a lot of question and difficulty around how you know what skill to roll and whether choosing a particular skill is uh, sort of a pit trap waiting for you as a player or not. Uh, and so you run into really a lot of published skill challenges that include something to the effect of um, no, you can't try to intimidate the Duke. He is too confident in his position to be intimidated. Well, okay, I understand stylistically why that's true and narratively why that's true, but mechanically, you just made sure that the fighter can't play. So, cool, thanks. That's the only social skill you gave me as a fighter, so um, I'll see myself out. Well, and how fun is that, right? You know, it, the, unfortunately, 4th edition seemed to have a lot of that sort of thing where exactly. um, there were certain mechanics in the game. We don't have to talk about them right now, but I'll mention, uh, you know, being dominated and being dazed and being stunned. The, those sorts of things sometimes could put the player, the player, not the PC, but the PC as well, but the player really in a position where they're sitting there for 20, 30 minutes and doing nothing. And that is not fun. The, the skill systems in, in the, the ch skill challenges somehow did that sometimes. So I want to say something about that super quick. Fourth edition is guilty of what you say, where a player could be sitting doing nothing for 20 or 30 minutes. But Everyone I ever heard criticize, um, you know, the the frequency of the stunned condition in fourth edition was, I think, overlooking things like the third third edition uh, hold person spell, which was less egregious than the second edition hold person spell, and so on. So, if you go back to earlier editions, you have you know paralyzed for one d four times ten minutes cool. I guess I'm out of this fight and the next one. I I, I could just go home. Like, I, I'm not only out of this fight, I'm out of the session? Are you kidding? And, and so, it's a valid criticism in fourth, and Lord knows I never took more heat from my players than when I used uh, monsters that could stun on the regular. But, man... Um, there are just some shocking 
decisions about player incapacitation and you know save or die or save or suck uh, effects going off in you know OD and D through third for sure. Um, I, you know, I I feel like I'm not comparing fourth to other editions when I talk about those sorts of things because. Well, I'm sort of comparing them, but not entirely, because every other edition also had some sort of save or suck things or, you know, level drain in first edition and in basic D&D. That was deadly. I mean, you and, uh, you know, anything that sort of took away your oh. or reduced your intelligence um, attribute, you know, anything that reduced your your constitution attribute, like anything that did that sort of effect and anything that had that sort of effect on a on a PC could lead to extremely hobbled players, uh, you know, in terms of what their character can now do. Oh, for sure. I guess my thing is, 4th edition was an opportunity to fix some of those things, it seems. You know, of course, this is hindsight and blah, 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 right? And Unfortunately, the way that fourth fourth edition is structured, it didn't fix some of it fixed a lot of things. Some things that weren't broken got fixed, um, and then it also didn't fix certain things. And this is one of those things. And it and and part of that is is related a little bit to skills. I think in part skill challenges were attempting to fix some of that that thing where you have a player who doesn't have a lot of high skills, they're just really good at combat and they're sitting around anytime you're not in combat. And so you take this system and you make skill challenges and those skill challenges allow for that player to have to have their character involved. Um, But I do agree with you that it's different from failing in combat when you swing and miss in combat. Well, you know, you just wait till your turn comes back around, so to speak. But when you're in a skill challenge and you fail, you have now affected the entire group's ability to succeed at something that should probably or or maybe should have been easier, but has now been made more difficult because failures have a, a dual effect. You not only failed your role and failed whatever your individual task is, you've now failed in your participation with the group trying to help them succeed. And that's sort of a double whammy that I, I'm not sure was foreseen uh, in the creation of skill challenges. So I definitely agree with what you're saying there. Um, I I want to add one countervailing point, and it doesn't like correct for all of the issues here. It is just one nice, possibly unintended benefit of the skill challenge structure. Skill challenges were not written with deadly stakes in almost all situations. That's correct. Uh, So many combats in adventures get written with, uh, you have to win this fight or the adventure can't proceed. There's no handling for, well, we lost. Like, we just just straight lost. I guess that's TPK. Not only do we fail the adventure, we fail the campaign. Go home, everybody. I'll see you next week with new characters. Well, with skill challenges, because the stakes are more mediated, um, you can afford to lose. And that's awesome. That is wonderful, because that actually kind of points to a more traditional story structure and the uh, 
the third act false climax or the fourth act reversal that that our traditional five act story structures really really love mm-hmm. and that's just not feasible in what I'll call ordinary D&D now I'm not saying that DMs haven't found great ways to solve for it and and so on so that you can lose a fight and not lose the campaign but I think skill challenges can bear some of that burden. So um, the, the skills plug into uh, uh, character powers uh, in a few different ways. Uh, you do see some powers that use skill roles, especially with rogues. Uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, you also, uh, really fascinatingly to me, see uh, powers that you can substitute in for your class's utility powers if you buy the appropriate feat to get the skill power and also have proficiency in the relevant skill. This shows up in the Player's Handbook 3, which um, I don't know how many people engaged with this content. Um, For us, the Player's Handbook 3 came out in the very late stages of the the big fourth edition campaign that I ran and one of the only ones that got to a significant level that, that I was involved in. Um, and that was a really cool thing that we just didn't use, but I'd love to see that come back in some kind of way uh, so that, you know, your proficiency in a given skill can be made a more central part of your expression as a character because what fourth edition wants to do as its characterization is to let you express character through which powers you're using on the regular they're your signature tricks well if this if proficiency in this skill is a signature trick for you then um you have a a power so that it's part of your verbs right in all kinds of different situations um so you have what amounts to sort of super first aid with heal skills uh maybe that's you know spend a healing surge and maybe that is uh, get an extra saving throw to shake off ongoing effects things like that um there's a bunch of them with acrobatics and athletics for movement tricks. Um, and especially if you dip into uh, uh, Dragon Magazine issues from the time, you see a, a bunch that touch on history and arcana and religion in interesting ways. And I really love that in concept. I'd love to see it uh, sort of brought into 5th edition probably through some vector that I haven't really imagined yet, but I really like what that does. Um, Also in 4th edition, uh, I think mostly through Dark Sun, and then maybe also through Essentials, uh, you see the introduction of backgrounds for the first time, which is a way to break your character out of the... uh, the dynamic of the skills that your class offers 
and lets you pick from a different list. Uh, you're having to trade away one of the skills from your class to get something outside your class, unlike 5th edition backgrounds. But it's still huge to see a way for a fighter to be proficient in perception or stealth or whatever. So there's a lot of... Uh, it's an interesting groundwork for 5th edition getting laid in the, the late 4th edition material. Um, and I think it does really work there, but still not as well as it works in 5th. And now I think I've said all that I want to say about 4th edition skills. I, I I agree with pretty much everything that you've said so far. I I I have a healthy respect for 4th edition. I, I feel like it did some things very well. The themes and backgrounds that they introduced later in the in the edition that allowed for some of that sort of fiddling that was fiddling that wasn't necessarily just changing out powers, or at least it didn't feel like it was just changing out powers. Um, that really worked. And it, and, you know, they, they sort of also explored having utility powers that, that gave you more access to different skills and whatnot. And I, I feel like they were really trying to make the game more, um, God, how do I say this? I, I, my mouth wants to say more accessible, but that's not really how I mean it. Um, at least not in the way that the word accessible is usually conceived of today. I, I really feel like they were trying to expand the game, and but within the constraints of the short 10, 10 skill, skill list and within the short sort of skill challenge functionality that they had created as the framework. And I think they were a bit successful. I don't think it was a hit-it-out-of-the-park home run, grand slam success, but I feel like it was more successful, I think, than people gave it credit for at the time. I think there's a sort of resurgence in love for fourth edition lately. Uh, I think it's because hindsight is twenty twenty, and it's now been several years, and I think people can look back and say, okay, well, okay, yeah, I guess some things were okay in that in that edition, and 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 people who previously had had really disdained the, the the functionality of certain parts of the system, maybe can look back on it with a more objective eye. And I think skills and the way that skills work and the way that skill challenges work, I think that's sort of getting a little better reading than than maybe it got upon release. Um, and I think there's a reason for that. I, and I think the reason is for, you know, the things that you talked about and the things that I mentioned. And I, I think, I think in a way it works for what they were trying to do with the system with that addition. And it has the same problem as, you know, the defenses and, and armor class and all that has that, that sometimes the role that you need to make is extremely high. Uh, but then on the other hand, sometimes you're, your bonuses that you're adding are really high. So you, you still have that arms race thing going on that, that sucks. But, you know. So maybe we should move on to 5th edition then. <laughs> Sam, tell us about skills in 5th edition. If I uh, ran it down in 4th, you can do it for 5th. So 5th edition skills. So basically, skills in 5th edition are... So they, they reduce the list. Well... I, let me let me restate that they didn't reduce the list compared to fourth edition, but 
the way that they have done skills in fifth edition, they are all related to an ability. So you're actually making what they term an ability check in fifth edition. So all of these skills, what we generally term as skills, are related to certain abilities, except for constitution, because there is no skill that is constitution-based, which brings up endurance, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. Um, but you have things like acrobatics, which is related to dexterity, animal handling, which is wisdom. Uh, and let me just run down the list real quick. Arcana, athletics, deception, history, insight, intimidation, investigation, medicine, nature, perception, performance, persuasion, religion, the sleight of hand, stealth, and survival. So they took some of the skills in fourth edition. It's still a pretty short list, especially compared to third edition, but they took some of the skills in, in from fourth edition and they split them out a little bit. Um, stealth and sleight of hand, that takes over for thievery, so that's split out a little bit. Um, diplomacy is gone, but instead you have persuasion, which is... Well, stealth was a fourth ed skill that that's true you're right you're, you're that's true that's true um then you have uh you don't have diplomacy anymore instead you have persuasion which is trying to persuade something or deception where you're also trying to persuade but you're lying while you're doing it um and things like that so so the skill list is a little bit more broad but it's directly related to uh, the abilities and um, the way that the proficiency bonuses work in 5th edition uh, is that uh, from 1st to 5th level, you have a plus 2 in your proficiency. And so your class and or background in 5th edition will give you proficiency in some set of these skills. And when you roll for that skill check or that ability check, as they call it in 5th edition, then you'll add your the ability modifier, then you also add your proficiency if you're proficient in that skill, and that's what you add to your d20 roll. That is within the realm of bounded accuracy, just like the two hit rolls and all that are within the realm of bounded accuracy, because the increase that you get to your proficiency bonus across 20 levels never goes above plus six, although some home, uh, some races and uh, will allow you to, or some some certain abilities will allow you to add twice your proficiency bonus, or two times your proficiency bonus, or add your proficiency bonus two times, even though they don't stack for regular people. So there's some fiddling that they can do there, but ultimately this is still constrained within bounded accuracy. Uh, and also there is a variant rule right in the player's handbook that basically says, even though we list these skills related to particular abilities, for example, acrobatics is related to dexterity. So when they talk about it in published products, they say, you know, the player, the, the PC or the player needs to make a, a dexterity acrobatics check. It's actually up to the DM, which characteristic or which ability is related to that skill based on the situation. Um, but because of the way that they're written on the character sheets and because of the way proficiencies work, most DMs that I have talked to and spoken about this with usually just use the ability that that is related to the skill the way that it's stated. I happen to be one of those people that does it based on situation. And so I sometimes call for my players to make a, a strength-based acrobatics check or a uh, intelligence-based deception check, you know, things like that. 
Um, so that's within the rules, but it's considered, I think, a variant rule. But it's still within the spirit of how skills work. And um, there's technically no skill challenge system in 5th edition. Is that correct? Okay. So that's complicated. <laughs> so th there are there are two major exceptions right now, along with some lesser exceptions. Uh, the the deal in fifth edition is that uh, every skill challenge is fully customized to the situation that it represents. So you've got your chases, uh, you've got your urban chases and your overland chases. Uh, that's that's straight up in the DMG. Then we look over, and that involves a lot of saving throws. Um, I think even more often that it involves skill checks, if I recall correctly. Um, then you get into your uh, complex trap mechanics in Xanathar's Guide. Um, complex traps are referenced as a conceptual possibility in the DMG, but not really explored. In Xanathar's, they get their own chapter. And... Uh, what a chapter it is. It's a, a great exploration of um, some some serious Grimtooth style uh, ludicrous over-the-top um, traps that, for reasons unknown, don't just have the whole ceiling fall on whoever's in the room. I mean, it, very kind of James Bond style death traps. And, and I love it. I'm I'm making fun of it, but it's great. It's um, it, it's doing um, the penitent man shall pass in long long form, and how can I criticize that? I'm I'm not the person to hate that. Um, like if it works for Indiana Jones, it works for your D and D game. I don't care. Um, uh, possibly up to and including the revolver. So moving along, um, there's there's a new big one. Um, in Ghosts of Saltmarsh, because their their whole ship system, everything about exploring the world um, in a ship with sort of um, the, the whole salt crawl system, there is a skill challenge. It doesn't involve the the smash cut of fourth edition skill challenges, but it's a skill challenge. It has catastrophic failure results. It has um, some modest rewards. Uh, but what goes on there is that you are managing uh, your crew's quality and trying to keep it a positive number because the quality number is also a modifier to rolls. Uh, but if the quality dips low enough, you're going to start having mutiny problems. So... That's that's a skill challenge with some teeth and some nuance, and uh, there are all these uh, percentile charts that uh, resemble the chase system, but are doing their own unique things and are telling stories about things that can go wrong in um, sailing a ship or just being on the water, um, and I think that's unmistakably a skill challenge because there's not really a place for an attack role. 
So it, our only other descriptive option for that is a skill challenge, but it isn't called out as such. Uh, so my answer for fifth edition is no, but mainly yes. They have skill challenges in the ways that matter, in the ways that we care about. Yes, they have skill challenges. I think they stayed away from the name skill challenge on purpose uh, because of the reception they got in fourth edition. It's really funny that you mentioned the Ghost of Saltmarsh book because I actually am in the middle of writing for my game, and I'll probably release it on Drive Through RPG or something. An expanded set of activities that one can do while they're on a ship, uh, you know, roaming around your water planet, trying to figure out, you know, what what crew members should be doing all day when you're just sailing. Um, you know, the the book only gives you know five, four or five, maybe six things that can be performed by the the crew and the officers and whatnot. Uh, and then it says, well, here are some of these challenges that may arise. And then that's when the quality system comes in that you were talking about and all that. Uh, but if you're only on a ship for a couple of days, those things are great. But what if you're actually sailing around for three weeks, right? You know, what, what, what do you do if you're sailing around for three weeks? What are these people doing all day long? So I'm, I'm actually in the middle of, uh, of, of greatly expanding that section of, of that salt marsh book just for the exact reasons that you point out that here you've got this framework now that isn't really touted or or marketed so to speak as a skill challenge but it's really a soft release of a skills challenge system uh just because of that whole full-on you know catastrophic failure complete 100 failure versus complete 100 success and then a couple of you know more granulations in between, well, you know, mostly succeed or mostly fail versus completely fail versus completely succeed. Even if you only have four levels there, it's still, it still fits within the thought process of a skill challenge. And it's fascinating to me that they, that they put that in there. Um, but I think that, I think use of skills and how to use skills has been a little bit neglected in 5th edition in terms of what how to enhance the game um i i agree with you that the the sort of trap that those those expanded traps those more complex traps they sort of hit on that um but you know there's a, there's a couple of areas in in 5th edition where uh, they didn't, the, the mechanics didn't get expanded very well. And then Xanathar's guide came out and they expanded the mechanics. And one of those is tools and tool use and how to integrate tools and skills, right? Because those, if you have a tool set and you're proficient with it and you have a skill, you know, proficiency bonuses don't really overlap. So what do you do? And Xanathar's addresses that and, and makes it pretty clear such that you can now, utilize a lot more different types of tools if you want to start creating different types of tools or you know you can start using skills in different ways based on what your tool sets are and traps uh, or skill uh, you know skill challenges and how to use skills uh, are the other thing that's not really expanded upon very well and the trap section in xanathar's does that you're right but 
I want more. <laughs> I want more. Uh, and it's funny because I didn't want more in fourth edition, right? I didn't want more in fourth edition. Fourth edition was what it was. And I thought the skill, the way the skills were uh, set up were fine. And I thought skill challenges were fine. But in fifth edition, I feel like there's a lot more they can do. That's a, that's a pretty open design space in my mind at this point. And I feel like it can be utilized to, to a great extent. So, so I think that the other thing you see is um, individual published adventures sort of handling their own design work for the skill challenge that they need that is not attached to a, a formal chassis the way all skill challenges of fourth edition would have to be. So my example for this is to point to Rise of Tiamat. Um, in the course of Rise of Tiamat, there's you're going on all these adventures but they're all within the i'll say framing device of interacting with the the council of waterdeep right um your goal is to persuade all these different factions to to back your play and commit their forces um and there's there's a lot of ways to have strikes against you from the start um but you've got to keep performing skill checks and any situation where there's sort of additive skill checks to improve outcomes is a skill challenge. It just, it just is. That's what we mean. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, nothing about that situation is in the framework of a skill challenge. It's funny that you bring that up because that's actually one of the things that I uh, didn't like about Rise of Tiamat. Not the idea of it. I liked the idea of it. I thought the execution was very lacking. Yeah, I don't have an opinion on the implementation. Yeah, the implementation was was faulty. You could you almost couldn't fail. In order for you for the party to fail, getting getting one or two of the of the council's backing, in order for that to fail, you would have to have failed so spectacularly several times in a row throughout the entire first half of the adventure that it would be a completely different adventure and you wouldn't even be trying to get their support anymore. I mean, it was uh, the implementation was not there. And I think, you know, that, that there's a different conversation there about that because, you know, that that product was written while fifth edition was being developed. So I don't blame the designers. I think it's a good product. Um, but that implementation of that particular part of it was a great idea that didn't have the framework in fifth edition that it needed to work well. I think a DM can pull it off, and I think probably players thought it was great uh, if the D if their DM pulled it off really well. Um, but I think the implementation as written was not so great, and I think the reason for that is because the implementation was sort of almost more based on the, like a fourth edition skill challenge than it was based on the way skills really work in fifth edition. And that's impossible for those designers to have known at that time because it was still being developed and we didn't have five years of play in fifth edition at that point. So I, don't get me wrong. I'm not blaming the designers at all. I just think it was a part of that that fell apart, but it was a great idea. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. All right, so what else do we need to say about skills in 5th edition? I don't have too much else I need to say. I feel like we've really done a solid job. I guess my, my final thoughts are I don't actually love the way tools are broken out 
to be completely separate from skills. I don't love the fact that uh, proficiency in a musical instrument and performance are separate things. I don't think that plays. Um, I will always be frustrated by how little the medicine skill does. And heal in fourth and third was just like it. It just did not deliver on enough to be worth buying the skill. It's interesting that fifth doesn't sort of go through and define a bunch of skill tasks and expected DCs for those skill tasks the way other editions have done and uh, to an extreme degree the way Pathfinder 2nd Edition does. Um, that that comparison becomes especially stark between between 5th and Pathfinder 2nd. Um, I, I don't think I dislike the fact that uh, 5e doesn't define skill tasks except that some specific skills that look more combat-friendly wind up being very nebulous and hard to apply. So all medicine actually does is stabilize people unless the DM or the adventure writer describe a specific thing for it to do. So it winds up being ad hoc rather than um, the player always knowing what it's going to mean. And that's a that's a shift in style, but a striking one. With that, I think I have said what I got to say. That's actually one of the things I like about what they did in Ghosts of Saltmarsh, what I was talking about before, is that also when it talks about the tasks that the crew can perform, it says, you know, if you want to do this, or actually there's a thing in Xanathar's too in the tools section. It says, well, if you want to use Navigator's tools to create a map of an area you didn't know about yet, that's a DC-15 check. If you want to just test to see if uh try to figure out if a, a map is fake that's a dc 10 or whatever you know i'm like I'm, I'm pulling the numbers out of my butt but you get the idea um they need more of that i totally agree with you because you're right things like medicine it's meaningless it's a meaningless skill i i am happy to see concentration as a skill just completely gone from the game um no one missed it in fourth and we certainly don't miss it in fifth um Constitution saving throws are getting the job done, and the DC scaling is usually pretty tidy um, until and unless there are very large amounts of damage getting thrown around, which the, you know, the, the third edition concentration system wouldn't have saved you from. So there's that. So I, I hate to say it, but there's one thing we haven't talked about, and that's uh, constitution and endurance and exhaustion. And how how that's not a skill. It's not really a skill. <laughs> uh, uh, there's no endurance skill the way there was in fourth. the The role of the endurance skill was always pretty dodgy, um, because knowing when you should roll endurance as opposed to a situation attacking your fortitude is pretty arbitrary. Um, but arbitrary in a way that matters because you have because being proficient in endurance doesn't have anything to do with whether or not fortitude is a good defense for you. Um, but uh, endurance had had to do with uh, resisting disease, and 
I want to say resisting some kinds of poison, um, but only very situationally. Um, and endurance was weird in that y uh, your armor check penalty applied to it. And um, I may live 100 years and never quite understand what they were getting at with that other than um, it's harder to draw a full breath in restrictive armor but if your armor is that restrictive, then it just doesn't fit. Um, I mean, I I have slept in chainmail. It's not a great idea, but it doesn't um, destroy you the way sort of a suddenly failed check is implied to do. And uh, that's another of the big shifts in fifth. Um, there is only one way that armor restricts you, and that is disadvantage on stealth checks. Armor doesn't restrict your swimming, your climbing, your jumping, none of those things. Um, it only causes disadvantage on stealth checks. And I'm not going to lie, it's a little weird that you can apparently swim just fine in uh, 50, 60 pounds of armor. That's literally not how buoyancy works, but okay, whatever. Doesn't it say, though? Does it um, I don't necessarily want to see... Uh, don't the don't the drowning rules or the swimming rules? If it does, I've forgotten about it and missed it. Uh, every time I've read it, I can't remember. <laughs> I'm thrilled to be wrong. Now I got to look it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know it doesn't say it in the swimming section, and it doesn't say it in the suffocating, aka drowning section. I wonder if it's in Ghosts of Salt Marsh. Anyway. <laughs> And, and I'm not really opposed to, uh, you know, heavy armor not applying to all athletics checks, but it not applying to swimming is never going to be completely normal to me. Yeah. Um, it also kind of, it depends on what kind of a game you're running, right? Like I'm running a seafaring game right now, so it's pretty important if armor affects swimming ability or not. It does. That's absolutely a thing. Um, if it, I'd say that if it doesn't affect swimming, then the the seafaring aesthetic is maybe taking a hit because heavy armor isn't part of the seafaring aesthetic, plain and simple. Yeah. Anyway. Um, Last thoughts. So, so yeah, I think I think let's call it. Well, I think let's call it here. I think I have said what I gotta say. As always, I've really enjoyed getting to talk to you, Sam. Uh, it's been a great time. And uh, I look forward to the next episode. Awesome. Well, I I agree. I I think it's uh it's it, it's really fun to talk to you as well. So, where can the fans find you? They can find me on uh, Patreon.com/slash/RPGmusings. They can also find me on RPGmusings.com, my website, or they can find me, of course, on the Tome Show right here, talking to you on Edition Wars, uh, or on Twitter at DM Samuel. What about you? I write for Tribality.com, where I uh, write the History of the Classes series and other articles. Um, they can also find me at uh, BrandisStoddard.com and on Twitter at BrandisStoddard. I hope uh, you've all enjoyed listening to us geek out over our, our favorite games. Thanks, everybody. Love you guys. Love you guys.